This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The field of global studies has a similar historical trajectory as the field of comparative education. Both fields in the American context were formalized in the 1950s during the Cold War and expanded in the 1980s when scholars began to take note of the rapidly increasing transnational flows of people, ideas, and products, and the social, political, economic, and cultural consequences of these trends. Both also lack a clear disciplinary home. Scholars bring myriad academic perspectives to both fields, from economics to sociology and history to anthropology. So today we explore global studies in depth in an effort for mutual learning. With me today is a leading scholar of global studies, Hilary Kahn. Hilary Kahn is the Assistant Dean for International Education and Global Initiatives and Director of the Center for Study of Global Change in the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. She is also a co-director of the Framing the Global Project, which is trying to, quote, develop and disseminate new knowledge, approaches, and methods in the field of global research. She's recently co-edited a book entitled Framing the Global, Entry Points for Research, that I think could be valuable to comparative education researchers. Hilary Kahn, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's great to be here. Thanks. So what is global studies? Global studies is a field of knowledge production that is getting more and more attention. It started around the mid-20th century, after the dawn of World War II, when, and particularly actually uh, after Sputnik, when there was an increasing recognition that the U.S. really needed more understanding of the world, that it particularly needed more deep area expertise and language abilities, uh, and it had a real emphasis on security and sort of maintaining the prominence of the United States, um, again, after the horrors of, of, of uh, World War II. That was the sort of the burgeoning of, of not just global studies, but actually international education sort of writ large. Um, and at this point in time, you know, in, in the 40s into the 50s, I think the particular emphasis was also about supporting development uh, in a very traditional sense of, of the word development, sort of development in, in a third world um, in order to sort of avo- avoid these um, the sort of bastions of unrest uh, and potential uh, and communism. So this is what really led to what we now know as area studies uh, and where where there was an increasing amount of funding um, and interest in in the scholarly community to support deep training in particular areas of the world, area studies, deep understanding of the languages, the history, the politics, the economics, the cultures, you name it, and and, uh, in a very somewhat... A bounded way, right? That 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 these particular regions, that that you could have specialists that focus on these regions um, without actually uh, a, a uh, understanding of the broader connections um, to other regions or to the world uh, and so on. 
So lo and behold, bit by bit, um, the world became more interconnected. Uh, The world became, uh, our economics obviously became more visibly interconnected. uh, And global studies, the sort of focus emerged in the 1980s. Uh, And this was just really at the same time where the, the, not just scholars and not just academics, but generally the world and various different practitioners were really beginning to recognize this, this incredible global flow, this high pace speed, this sort of intensity of these, uh, flows of things and of communities and of people and, and, and knowledge. Uh, and, and that was the beginning of global studies. Now you asked, uh, what it is. And, and I've actually, if you, if you must know, I've very rarely been asked that particular question, you know, so pinpointed, like, what is global studies? Because it's not, there's, and it's not an easy answer. And I, I actually don't necessarily have an, it, the easy answer. To me, what global studies is depends on the person who's asking that question. It depends on the researcher who is particularly has a particular question that they're trying to understand. Um, it ba- it's based on the position of the researcher, whether you're coming from a particular discipline or interdisciplinary perspective. It depends on the region um, that you're that you're seeking that knowledge from. Uh, ultimately, though, it is about understanding the world relationally. Um, it's about understanding connections, but it's also about understanding what is being connected. Now, is now is global studies similar to international relations? I know that's another discipline um, in the ac- uh, the academic field, and I I just always wonder, you know, there must be overlaps, but somehow yeah. differences as well. For sure, and and I also have to clarify that the type of global studies I sort of propose and that I think we do at the Center for the Study of Global Change and at Indiana University um, may not be the type of global studies that you'll find everywhere else or anywhere else. I mean, it's it's a growing area of global studies. We'll talk more about this uh, sort of this, uh, approach of grounded global studies, but not every university would sort of claim that this is well how they think about global studies. Uh, the IR was much more prominent in the field of global studies um, when it when at the beginning. So you know this first phase of global studies in the 1980s and to the 1990s is where really economics and political science and international re- relations really dominated. Um, and this was also the same time where, Many of the these sort of scholars were focusing on globalization as this um, sort of singular, omnipresent entity that was inevitable, uh, and that also saw cultures and states and people around the world as sort of victims to globalization. Uh, and 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 with that said, many scholars and and others saw that globalization was also nothing new at all. So there was sort of these two camps that was either this sort of like omnipresent, you know, dominant hegemonic force, or it was just like the same old thing. Um, And it was in, uh, so things changed in the 1990s for global studies. And that's really when a lot of the academic programs emerged and, and, and scholarly journals emerged and the disciplinary focus really, really widened. As far as IR goes, uh, 
the, the big difference is that the main frame of reference for international relations remains the nation. It remains the state. Uh, and, and I think global studies works really, really hard to, to, uh, un, to not be defined by a particular frame of reference or a particular analytic, analytic lens. Um, and that's exactly in many ways what international relations does. So I would say that's sort of the biggest, uh, uh, focus or the biggest change. The other thing that international relations does, although it focuses on relations, it doesn't really focus on relations as much as you would think. It doesn't focus on on the sort of it. It, it often falls back on a comparative approach, or it the relations are are so um, multi. Uh, no, they're so singular in the sense that they they are are uh, sort of an. You know, they they really strip down to these sort of very basic po po political policy oriented uh, relations, uh, and and then they often lose track actually of what is being connected. Right. So the global tends to focus on those relational um, sort of um, the in between, but also where those policies, those ideas, those um, new approaches are being anchored. And, and that's one of the bigger differences, I would say. And and so your center takes what you said earlier, the grounded global studies approach. Can you explain what that is and how, you know, what sort of academic disciplines are, are you drawing on to think about a grounded approach to global studies? Yeah. So... And I don't want to take credit for this. This is not that new because, again, in the 1990s, the, the, the sort of switch from the IR approach and the economic approach to globalization and global studies really started to occur. And that's when disciplines such as anthropology, sociology, geography, and I would really, uh, I think those three, I think, in many ways were and have still been sort of three of the disciplines that have had the greatest impact on this sort of a new field of global studies. Others along the way have really become uh, become um, more integrated, um, including many new uh, humanities-based uh, disciplines and so on. But um, the this it was it was the influence of of, of these particularly three disciplines. I think that started global studies to think more about assemblages and networks and to focus also at the same time of how the global was actually given meaning in particular communities and politics and people and in lives, right? So that it wasn't just this omnipresent sort of dominating um, entity that was turning these people into victims, but that People and places and communities and 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 particular you know in cultures were actually given meaning and also part of it was a by it was a relationship between globalization and the various different peoples and places that was that were giving it meaning. Um, so when I when I talk about a grounded global studies, you know, I could this is in many ways the approach that we have at the framing the global project and. We're also beginning to publish um, a lot of this work in our Framing the Global Research series with Indiana University Press. But it, for, for many ways, when I talk about grounded global studies, I talk about it being, well, it, empirically based, for one thing. 
that that and when I say empirically based, I mean I think you know all research is supposed to be empirically based, but there is not one global, and you know we can talk a little bit about that too. There are multiple globals, um, and and you need to be allowing your particular uh, data, your research, your material, the narratives, whatever that data is, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, you need that to be driving your approach to global studies. There's not going to be one, you know, methodological toolbox that you can pull for, for global studies. It's, this is, it's not yet. I'm saying not yet. It's not yet a discipline. Right. So there is, and I actually don't know if it ever will be. It's a field for sure. Um, maybe it will be a discipline. Maybe this is where, you know, sort of global studies is going in the future. But at this point there, it, it's going to be uh, signified in different ways in specific places. So when, when you talk about grounded is, is this understanding that you're talking about transnational boundaries, transnational phenomena that transcend boundaries, but that is truly given um, significance within specific spaces um, and that you need to enter into that space from, from whatever, um, whatever is giving your, whatever is driving your research. So what would be an example of a transnational phenomena that has specific meaning in a certain space? I'm going to answer this by not answering it, but I'm going to answer it by by talking a bit about uh, some of my where I became a global scholar. And I say that because when I'm an anthropologist, so my First, um, anthropologists are sort of bred to be not global thinkers. We're bred to be, you know, very globally oriented. We do our field work in particular communities. You know, the more remote, the better. I mean, a lot of these binaries and, you know, um, still exist, actually, uh, although anthropology, as I also said, has gone more global and has really contributed to the field of global studies in some ways more than any other discipline or maybe geography, again, geography, sociology, and anthropology. But um, they, for, when, I, when I first um, became, when I first was an anthropologist, um, I, was, I would not think uh, globally. One of the things you need to do to think globally is you need to be able to think universally, Okay, and and so you need to be able to think about broad trends that are happening sort of across um, space in a very universal way. And anthropologists, you're trained to think very relatively, you know, about particular context, about difference, about these sort of unique spaces and, 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 and not necessarily to think at a broadly way. In fact, in some ways, universality is sort of taboo in anthropology. Right. So but to think globally, you need literally to be able to do both. You need to be able to think very universally about uh, these broad issues and also about the significant um, that the the idiosyncratic locations where broader trends are given meaning. So you need to be really thinking about the general and the particular. Now, how I am getting to your question, because one of the sort of universalities that are often proposed that I think is a really good um, uh topic to discuss in the classroom is, is human rights. So you have these sort of basic human rights, um, 
they're being they've been created by you know um, different conventions that are tactic supposed to be a collective endeavor. You have um, you know um, the they're supposed to be um, indivincible. They are um, sort of for all humans, and and they apply across the board. So that would be I'm not this is probably not the best example, but I'm going to say it anyways. But human rights as a construct, as an anthropologist, we were always very skeptical of human rights. Like, how could you have something that's universal? Like, there's no such thing. And, but in truth, and, and there's, it's even called the Declaration, right? It's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so, and, and so anthropologists have always really dealt with human rights in a very, very different way. And, and instead, it's not that we are against human rights or that global studies, you know, um, Grounded global studies is against human rights. It, it totally believes in human rights, but it also recognizes that these that these broad phenomena, these these policies, these these universal declarations need to be given uh, need to be understood within the particular context um, and the communities and the people that are are living out these rights. Uh, and and so you know, there's there's in many ways, I guess that would be one example. And I think I went round and round and to answer a very simple question. I mean, other examples of transnational trends, you, you can pick your global issue, you know, choose it in, you know, migration, um, immigration, uh, communications, um, democracy, you know, none of those have meaning unless they're, unless they're sort of played out and in, in, in specific locations. And, and and I don't mean necessarily specific locations in a in a sort of traditional sort of community sense, but in in organizations or in maybe in um, in in you know the in art worlds or in in um, transnational diasporic uh, you know uh, identities, you know. So it it. You determine what space you're going to explore it through and and you ground it. Again, it doesn't have to be grounded sort of on the ground in a community like in an anthropological sense or traditionally ethnographic sense. And I'm talking traditionally because ethnographers are can can do a lot of they've definitely sort of challenged that boundary now. Uh, but again, you know, choose your global issue and and and. To me, you want to look at it from as general a perspective as you can. So understand it as a transnational phenomenon or flow or policy or some kind of connection. But also you need to understand it where it interconnects with with sort of the intimacies of our lives. And, and one of the one of the examples that you do write about um, in one of your pieces that I've recently read is about a cup of coffee, you know, how you can actually look at this simple, I don't know, daily occurrence that people people buy coffee, drink it, and maybe never think about it. But you kind of turn that and say you can actually look and dig deeper and kind of uncover a lot of these transnational issues that are affecting people. Yeah, I love coffee. And <laughs> I actually Me do too. love coffee. Yeah, and, and, and so to get to students particularly i think this is where i'm really talking about 
the the cup of coffee. But it's 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 the same thing when you're doing global scholarship is you need your entry point, right? And so my entry point for students often are these simple uh, items that are so apparently neutral that you don't even truly understand how they are in many ways lightning rods for these global connections, right? For all these global phenomena that I'm, that I'm sort of speak of. So, you know, everybody drinks coffee. You know, there's some hundred million people drink coffee every day. I have a, my, my cup here doesn't have coffee in it. It has water in it because it's a little late. But but what we don't see when we're drinking our coffee is the whole life of 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 coffee and and how it has a has a global face right so what we don't see are the you know the the little children on the mountainsides in Costa Rica and Guatemala or Ethiopia or Indonesia that are sort of picking these 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 beans and selling them to to the middle man or the middle person who then sells them to the exporters and the processors and, uh, and and basically how they end up in our Starbucks or in our, you know, coffee cups every morning. Um, and if you can take that cup of coffee and dissect that for your students to sort of just peel it back bit by bit by bit by bit, you can show them the global. I mean, it's right there and, and you can show them, you know, all the inequalities and, and there's a lot of inequality in the global, right? And that's, it's certainly not flat. You can demonstrate that this coffee is a very, very complicated, messy, disjointed um, representation of, of, of the globe. And, and what you can do is you can, demonstrate how the global is occurs across many scales you know and 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 to to make meaning for your student though you need to bring it down to something that is in their own backyard whether it's a cup of coffee and i've used coffee or roses or iphones or you know um sugar is a great one you know, just take something and and begin to demonstrate the complexity and how everything is is truly has a, interfaces with the global in some way. Um, and I say the global with the understanding that there really is not one global, um, but but multiple globals. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to have multiple globals? Yeah. So. Um, we have an edited volume called Framing the Global, and I actually really wanted to call it Framing the Globals, but our, my publisher did not want anything to do with that. And I think it's good. I'm kind of glad that we didn't go that route. But I, I was really kind of fighting for it for a while because a grounded form of global studies does not seek one global. It recognizes that there are a ton of different ways to frame your global. There's not a singular global, that there are... Uh, just like there's no one question that we're all asking, but it just, so we're all asking different questions. We're entering it from different disciplines. We're asking it about particular areas of the world. I mean, what is global in a, in a, in a truly big G way is given meaning in small G ways by people and by the interaction and by the, the, the sort of complexity of, 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 of where globalization is, is actually playing out. Um, and so I often talk about big G globals. I don't 
I don't know what a good example of that is. Again, pick your global issue. I mean, I guess, you know, um, the, uh, people have talked about that big D development, little D development, and, and or big D, big N neoliberalism and little N neoliberalisms, you know, that in fact, there's, there's, to think about the global in a singular way is it's just not helpful or in only a universal way it it there is really nothing that is it it goes back to the 1980s early you know earlier phase of of global studies where it is seen as this sort of monolithic uh, penetrating force um, when in fact it's not it is given meaning um, in a variety of different contexts now Interestingly, pop culture still sees it as this omnipresent, dominant, hegemonic force. Not, not all, I'm not, but that perspective, that understanding of globalization, um, that there are um, that everybody's a victim of globalization, um, still occurs. Now, we won't get into that here. Um, about the winners and the losers of globalization, because that's increasingly something that is driving our politics and our our lives. Uh, because there, it's there certainly is. Um, again, it's not a level playing field, and and I'll leave it at that. I mean, it it seems like this the the idea of having globals and and having um, well every person and every situated experience kind of constructs these globals. It seems like it's very different than this global local dichotomy that often we hear about or, or read about in academic literature. And it seems like it's going away from that sort of dichotomous thinking. Yeah, I hate dichotomies and I hate <laughs> binaries, and but they're really, really hard to get out of. And no matter what we do, we often end up thinking about the world in juxtapositions, um, even as hard as we try not to. Um, it's and, But what happens when we do that, when we think in these sort of dichotomies, is I, I think we efface and we hide up, we conceal so much of that interdependence and interconnections and interrelatedness of, of, of the world. It, it simplifies things in, a, in, a, in often, I think, a, in a harmful way. Uh, again, it's sort of best to, I would say, create our categories and our bind, uh, 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 not our binaries, just generally create our sort of um, our cartographies of scholarship based on what we're reading and what we're seeing and what we're exploring rather than based on the, the way it's always been done. And that's really what a binaries often do. Uh, they're too rigid. They're too constraining. But boy, they're entrenched. And so it's very, very hard, even me. I mean, a lot of times when I talk about global local, because I fall back on it too, even though I try really, really hard not to. And I mean, it just depends on the context of who I'm speaking to. But, you know, how, how do you explain that? You know, that it's very difficult. I, 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 one of my goals is to find a, a better term. You know, people use global and so on. I don't like that either. But you know, but but there's a good reason for that because that's really what it is. I mean, it, it they're seamless, and and um, you know, just like um, you know, you can't create a division between them. Just like walls don't separate national the national from the international. 
right? I mean, this is like, uh, this is very porous and so on. But dichotomies, I, 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 I often try to sit on my hands when I talk about the global and local, because I often raise my hands when I'm talking about the global. And then I raise, I lower them when I'm talking about the local. And I, I literally, I, I find myself doing that all the time. And most people do, you know, it's just this like, but no, the whole point of global studies, grounded global studies is that, in fact, the global is 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 everywhere, and the local is also is sort of given meaning to the global. So, uh, but all these kinds of uh, binaries I hate in my field actually: global, local, um, area studies, global studies, um, scholarship and practice. Uh, social science and the humanities, uh, teaching and research, you know, these are all sort of binaries that, that kind of drive me a little batty. But um, until I find out, find ones to replace them or, uh, yeah, I tend to um, have a messier approach uh, to the world. Is that um, the approach that you take? You use this word entry points. Um, is, is this a way you kind of conceptualize and think about globals in order to not have that binary thinking? Yeah, it, it is in many ways. And, and that's something that we, we talk about specifically in the Framing the Global Edited Volume. Uh, and, and again, because globals can be found pretty much anywhere and there's not a methodological toolbox or a disciplinary paradigm or or one particular entry point that every scholar can explore the global. Um, because of the multiplicity and the plurality of globals, what we're really doing in is, is we need we need not designate particular entry points to, to understanding the world. But in fact, it depends really on the questions you're asking, the spaces in which you're asking them, if you know your disciplinary context. Um, in the book, we basically decided that there was not going to be a defined uh, approach or there wasn't going to be one definition of global. And let me just tell you, take this back to, say, to talk about Framing the Global. Framing the Global project was a uh, grant supported uh, by the Mellon Foundation project that was a research and publications project. And we brought together 15 scholars, top-notch globally oriented scholars to, to help us redefine the field of global studies. And one of the first things we tried to do in, in framing the global project was create a glossary of, for global studies. And so, you know, we had terms like we had a wiki and we were all contributing to it and we had transnational and global and, you know, we were trying to sort of, def that eventually we just decided was not going to work. Because we couldn't at all come to grips. We were all approaching from different ways. We were all thinking about it from our disciplinary context on the on the on the work that we were doing, whether we were humanities based or social scientific or whether we were more qualitative or quantitative. Uh, and so ultimately, we decided that that the one thing that we could do together as as um, a, a group, you know, as a framing the global, as a, as a new way of thinking about global studies was suggest these entry points that, in fact, what we need to, to do solid global studies work and to be uh, uh, sort of empirically based global studies work is to it's is to is to think about research, global studies research as as, as entry points, um, which which basically. Um, it. It brought down the abstraction of the global. 
it sort of brought it down to a point where it had more uh, substance to it in some ways. Um, and uh, but no matter. It, and it undid those types of binaries. So it got us out of thinking, you know, about uh, not only binaries did it get us out of, but it got us out of sort of any bi traditional category. I mean, one of the things I think you're trying to do in global studies, I mean, in, and actually in any interdisciplinary field, right, is bust a category here and there. Um, and so you you need to sort of, you know, rethink what is a discipline, rethink what is your 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 research toolbox and and entry points really allow you to uh, sort of conceptualize um, the global based on 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 your particular empirical based questions um, and research concerns so what sort of entry points do you use in your own work well, I would say coffee was an entry point, right, for me, you know, and I mean, as far as I'm, I'm going back to the classroom, but but coffee is an entry point, um, you know, but I often I also use um, identity a lot in, in my own research. I, I don't do as much research as I once did. Um, but back in the days when I did more research, uh, my entry point, for example, when I worked um, in in the um in Livingston, Guatemala, with a group of Kekchi Mayan, um, uh, with the Kekchi Mayan community, where we, uh, I actually did a visual ethno ethnographic um, project with them. But what I was really looking at was 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 their worldview, their identity, their sense of self, um, and and how that, in fact. Through that, if you sort of really explored how they saw themselves vis-a-vis um, -vis others and vis-a-vis -vis authority figures and 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 um, and sort of a sense of the foreign, uh, that that you can kind of get a sense of, you can understand how the the global was sort of embedded in their senses of selves. And when I talk about the global, I'm talking about their understanding of of sort of historical um, sort of Guatemalan. Um, uh, politics and civil wars and and U.S. relations and and uh, conquistadors from Spain and all these different sort of authority figures that are truly truly global were sort of embedded in in a worldview um, of of the Quechimaya. So in many ways, I would say for my work um, in Guatemala, it was identity or it was a worldview. It was a it was a um, reflection on oneself that that was my entry point to understanding the global and what do you think the future of global studies is going to be do you, do you think it's going to be a discipline or would you see it going in other directions so one thing i would like to see for the field of global studies is that it becomes a place where our students can get jobs in traditional disciplines that's always been one of the issues of global studies is that, you know, you have this interdisciplinary, amazing breadth of knowledge and you have multiple tool sets and you've dabbled in different uh, disciplines. But are you going to get hired in a political science department or are you going to get hired in an anthropology department? Um, not today, not yet. And so one thing I would like to think is that Ideally, we might become a, a, a field or 
an emerging discipline that in fact would allow our, our, our scholars to be hired um, in traditional disciplines and that traditional disciplines begin to see the benefits of, of, of having that breadth of knowledge and that traditional disciplines don't see it as detracting from their own disciplinary perspectives, but in fact, strengthening it and complementing it uh, and enhancing it. Um, I think the other area that perhaps is that global studies, and I, this might already be happening in global studies, it's certainly happening in global learning, is that the field becomes increasingly more than just knowledge, but it becomes a, a field that is about what you do with that knowledge. So an increasing sense of application, um, perhaps issues of social justice, uh, there might be more sort of issues of ethics uh, built into this. So it's really about, it's it's not just about knowledge, but it, there's also, um, and it's not just about sort of discursive discussions about knowledge, but in fact, it's about taking that knowledge and applying it um, and having an impact. So overcoming that theory practice dichotomy. There you go, exactly. <laughs> Let's break some more buses. We'll bust some more categories. <laughs> well, Hilary Khan, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It was really wonderful to talk. My pleasure. It was a real delight. Thank you for hosting me. Hilary Khan is the Assistant Dean for International Education and Global Initiatives and the Director of the Center for the Study of Global Change in the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. Fresh Ed's assistant producers are Sherry Yang and Yuval DeVere. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.